you guys like jazz? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, go, go, go. No, 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 no. That was much better than anything I could have come up with. <laughs> but are there any other movies that uh, stand out to you because a performance is so well done because it's an actor playing two different roles? Like, what movies come to your mind first when you think of like oh. someone having to like play off themselves in a way like that? Because it feels like a very normal TV and movie trope that we've seen a lot, but... Are there any interpretations that stand out for you in particular? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I know there's better ones out there, but I just can't get the freaking parent trap out of my head. Oh. I need someone to give a suggestion so I can say something besides Lindsay Lohan. The Parent Trap is a legitimately <laughs> good movie, and I will stand up for it. Wasn't there a god-awful Adam Sandler movie released, I guess, two <laughs> Jack years and ago? Jill. I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I heard nothing about it except it was just the worst, so... How about you think about uh, that movie instead? Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, like, a less funny one uh, is Alien Covenant. Has anyone mm. seen Alien Covenant? I have. Unfortunately. I have. Are you talking about Fastbender? <laughs> yes. So, I think he is incredible in that movie, playing, like, two different versions of the same android against himself Mm -hmm. uh in a way that like also just kind of like bends tech and is you know eons ahead of the technology of this movie so not comparable on on that uh front but um i really think that that was like maybe one of the best performances of an already stacked year of 2017 and he had to play two different characters that like even though they're you know the way they talked was the same I still feel like we're very distinct. Yeah, I think that movie is like way better than people think it is. But mm-hmm. I've only seen the first two Aliens, so or I've seen Alien and then the first Aliens, <laughs> to be more specific. Yes, of course. I'll, I'll go to bat for Alien Covenant as well. By the way, I, I oh yeah, I think we're fighting a losing battle there, but <laughs> I also enjoyed it. It's great, like right up until the full alien shows up and they just like dick around with it in the daylight. And then it's not as fun anymore, but all the rest of the movie is, is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It came out after Prometheus, right? Yes. It's supposed to be like a sequel to Prometheus and also set up alien. Sorry, we're getting off track, but I could talk about alien (laughs) for a while. (laughs) So could Ethan. Oh, that, that made me think of another dual actor pair. If this counts. Andy Serkis and Lord of the Rings, playing both Gollum and Smeagol. Isn't that impressive, that acting range? <laughs> does, or does yeah, that not I count? count? Uh, we'll give it to you, because Andy Serkis okay. deserves more yeah, credit oh, yeah, for yeah. the things he does. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's got to be more out there. We can always make a nod to the nutty professor. Oh, yeah. Which is also Eddie Murphy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is this his thing? Okay. Now that I'm thinking I... about it, because he's got that. Uh, doesn't he do Coming to coming America? Coming to America. does he do multiple characters? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fascinating. Um uh, Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future Two. That's oh, yeah. right. That's an another example. Another bunch of that one is more like they just kinda threw him in and were like, All right, go uh act like a girl, Michael J. Fox. <laughs> like you can handle this. Yeah. <laughs> True. If I'm True. gonna be honest, I think I've only ever seen the first Back to the Future. I've never seen any of the other parts. I mean, so I, you've seen the best Back to the Future, so yeah. at least that's something. 
my wife would be remiss if I didn't mention Hilary Duff playing two different people and the Lizzie McGuire <gasps> movie. Oh, okay, we we got a Liz head here. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Fun fact: I don't think I've shared on the podcast yet. Uh, when I was young, I really liked uh, Lizzie McGuire, like the TV show. Nice. And I made my grandpa take me to go see the Lizzie McGuire movie in theaters. Oh. Like my old, you know, he was like 50-something at the time, like grizzled beard <laughs> grandpa. And just me and him just watching the Lizzie McGuire movie in theaters. And I fell asleep halfway through. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and he just sat there having to watch Rocking the rest out. of the Lizzie McGuire movie all by himself. <laughs> now that is love. That is love. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> Oh, Could we say every superhero movie has people play two different characters? No. Or is that too far of a stretch? Get that shit out of here. <laughs> they need to be at least, you know, mostly different characters. But what about mostly. Iron Man? And one, he's like a super sassy, smart billionaire. And another, uh-huh. he's the same, but he's in a metal suit. No, I won't think of, think of the difference though. <laughs> one of them's got a rocket launcher in its wrist. The other one has like a really nice suit. So actually, so I, different. I guess both of them have really nice suits. Anyways, never mind then. Disregard <laughs> that. Should we talk about one of the apparently multiple Medi at Medi Murphy's? Medi Murphy. Eddie Murphy performances where he plays multiple people in the same film. Yeah. Oh, you know what I would love. If in a movie, do you think an actor could play one role so well and another role so bad that they get a nomination for one of their roles, but not for another? (laughs) Or do you think the fact that like they're in the it's the same movie that they have to nominate both roles? This should be like a goal, like first (laughs) actor to get nominated for both an Oscar and a Razzie, but they have to be for two different (laughs) roles in the characters yeah Yeah, it can't be you know for the same performance because that's happened before i feel like that shouldn't be too hard to do i feel like the oscars are used to doing some silly stuff a la this year where both the people who play judas and the person who plays black messiah and the movies judas and the black messiah are both nominated (laughs) for supporting roles they're both supporting who is the main actor (laughs) the title of the movie is judas and the black messiah (laughs) dj it's madness it's insane and they and they campaigned Lakeith as lead, which he is, and still the Academy voted him supporting. So what does that even mean? I don't they just know. decided on their own that he was a supporting actor. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me either. I don't know how any of that works, but I was like, even from an outsider's perspective, this seems real dumb. And I'm confident in that much. <laughs> and if it screws up. Daniel Kaluuya's chance, which I don't think it will. I think he's pretty much a lock. And the Oscars, you know, by the time people are listening to this episode, the Oscars uh, happened like four weeks ago. But if it screws up his chance at winning Best Supporting Actor, I will be very upset because he deserves it for that movie. He's so good. (sighs) Now it's Bowfinger time. Now it's Bowfinger This is 
Discovering Directors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discovering Directors, a podcast where we talk about a director's entire filmography, one movie at a time, one week at a time, to paint the picture of their entire career. My name is Ethan Tyler Paula Chaffee Cooper. My name is Paige Mazath Marie Cooper. I'm Sydney. And for the second time on Discovering Directors, we are joined uh, by our guest, DJ, from Mainly Movies. DJ, Woo-hoo! say hello to the people. Hello, people. I am excited <laughs> to be back. Uh, I was thrilled that you let me come back for this movie specifically. Um, I had a great time watching this, and I- I'm ready to get into it. Well, perfect. This is our fourth season on Discovering Directors, and what feels like our about 18th episode on Frank Oz. It has been eternal. But I believe this is episode nine of Mm -hmm. our series on uh, Frank Oz. And guys, I, uh, I have been enjoying these movies. I am Mm -hmm. excited to, for the next three. Uh, But you know, we'll get there soon. Let's talk a little bit about, Bowfinger and kind of the origins of this story of this idea and how it came to be a project for Frank Oz. So as we know, frequent collaborator and kind of the, if Frank Oz had a Wes Anderson like stable of frequent collaborators, um, pretty much his only one would be Steve Martin. And so Steve Martin, you know, legendary comedic actor comedic stand-up uh writer had come up with this idea in around the mid 1980s um but decided that he you know every time he would go to write a screenplay he would kind of bat this idea around and then put it back on the shelf um for about 13 years before he finally put pen to paper and started to come up with the movie that eventually becomes Bowfinger. And the story theoretically goes that uh, the inspiration for this came from um, an actress named Mary Pickford, who uh, was an actress that was really famous in the 1920s and 1930s. She visited Russia in the late 1920s, and the rumor was that there was a Russian film crew that basically did this to her, so followed her around, took camera shots of her would like throw their actors in to go interact with her super quick um, so that they could make her the lead of their movie without her knowledge. And that's kind of what was printed, you know, in all the newspapers and stuff like, Oh, Mary Pickford in secretly in a Russian movie. Um, What had actually happened was that she had agreed to be in the movie uh, ahead of time to help promote like the Russian film movement at the time. Um, And it was literally named, like, Kissing Mary Pickford. Like, you know, all the clues were there that she was actually involved. But um, that's kind of the base inspiration for where the story came from. And so uh, when Steve Martin kind of took that idea and reworked it, and we'll talk about some of the other ideas he had for this story later. um, But when he had it ready to go, he took it to Brian Grazer, who we've talked about before, on this podcast because he helped to produce house sitter um, to see if he was interested in the project and um, basically just to get him to read over it. And Grazer read over it and was like, yes, you know, we want to make this movie. Let's go. And Steve Martin basically was like, 
how much of a budget are you going to give me so that I know, you know, who I can throw this to? And Grazer was like, I'll give you the big budget. <laughs> and so he, Steve Martin turned around and attached, you know, all the cast, um, but including Frank Oz, who at the time had signed on to work on a project with uh, Sylvester Stallone and then later Bruce Willis um, called Ump, which was supposed to be a departure from Frank Oz's normal movies uh, because it was supposed to be a black comedy about a hitman who adheres to a strict set of rules and is responsible for taking out a triplet of mob bosses. Three triplet mob bosses? So nine mob bosses in no, total? No, no. Okay. Three, three total mob bosses that are triplets. Okay. And, you know, that's basically all the information we ever got. But for, like, an entire decade, this project was rumored. Frank Oz was always attached. Um, and it just kind of ended up falling through um, around the same time that he was offered this project. Uh, so he moved over to Bowfinger, you know as a favor most likely to Steve Martin who was looking to get this made and uh we'll talk about some of the some of the fun of production when we get into the movie but this movie released August 13th 1999 uh 8 days before my 4th birthday wow and one of prince's favorite years <laughs> <laughs> thank you wow it i mean it was Thanks, just guys there. <laughs> Uh, let's get into this movie. Who wants to go first talking about uh, general first impressions? I guess... Paige, you want to go first? <laughs> no. DJ, we'll we'll throw you on the chopping block first, too, because um, we have not heard your general thoughts on Frank Oz, if you have any, um, and why you decided to pick this movie when I kind of threw to you the whole schedule and uh what went into that and then you can go ahead and just tack your opinions of this movie onto that okay yeah yeah so as far as like frank oz in general i feel terrible because you've invited me on to like hopefully provide some insight but honestly your podcast has been the most insightful about his filmography because i mostly knew frank oz as like the puppet guy and the yoda guy like i was vaguely aware that he had directed movies and as we've gone through the catalog, or as you have gone through the catalog, rather, I've picked up the, the bigger ones like the Dark Crystal, Little Shop of Horrors. I feel like I've seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but I didn't really have like an idea of who he was as a filmmaker. So uh, your series has been very insightful as far as that goes. So I, I didn't have like a predisposition to Frank Oz or anything. As far as uh, my interest in this movie, I know I had seen it a long time ago, but it, it, it was one of those that I only had like precursory knowledge of. And uh, scrolling through, like as soon as I saw Steve Barton and Eddie Murphy, I had to have picked this one just because those are <laughs> two just comic legends. And it's one of those movies where you feel kind of uh, tentative about get, like getting fully behind it just because... There are elements of it that are of, I want to say a different time, but it, I mean, (laughs) some of that stuff, yeah, (laughs) one, it's not that long ago. Two, some of this stuff was always wrong, so it's like not better just because it's old. Uh, We would just call it out more today, I would say. 
But despite those elements, I think at its whole, like, this is a very good comedy. And I thought some of the directions and some of the set pieces were actually very well executed, more so than I would think of just like an average, you know, B comedy. So I, I had a really good time. I do think that there are elements of the movie that are just that are just not going to work. But I think overall, it was still <laughs> a very funny movie for me. And I, I was very glad I picked it to, to go back and uh, rewatch because I'm it's one of those that had stuck with me. Like once I had seen scenes, it came back to me. But man, yeah. Eddie Murphy and his prime, like couldn't do better. Uh, it was, and great. this is like, you know, right before I will talk about it later, but this is right before the fall of both Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. This is like their last, hurrah essentially before they just get lost in like family comedies for several decades yeah well that's where the money is but uh yeah and, and they do make the money <laughs> yeah and that, that's so true and it was so interesting seeing eddie murphy and steve martin kind of in this uh, as it relates to like the last movie i'd seen eddie murphy in was dolomite is my name which has so many interesting parallels to like uh someone who is like fading from obscurity and kind of has to really uh dive into the scene to kind of keep their name out there and it was also a movie about making a movie so uh just some fun parallels there uh but yeah i I had a good time it was a very good comedy i think um but i don't know comedy is subjective so it's okay if you guys didn't like i I didn't know how this was gonna go (laughs) uh that's i hate this movie It's very interesting that you connected that for me because in my brain, I saw Eddie Murphy on screen and I was like, oh, yeah, I really liked Dolomite is my name. And mm-hmm. then that's like all the thought that I gave it. You know, <laughs> didn't, even, didn't even think about the fact that like they're both about ramshackle crews, like assembling a movie mm-hmm. <laughs> on as low a budget as possible. Very interesting. Yeah. And we're all somewhat movie nerds here, I feel like. So <laughs> there is just something so fulfilling about like watching these like ragtag groups, like put together something even somewhat successfully. Uh, so yeah, it, it, oh, yeah, it worked for, for sure. me. I'll go because I've been talking. Uh, so I think that I can't tell how I feel about this movie. Oh. And I have... How conclusive. I know. I have an extremely hot take that I'll share in a second when we get into the cast. Um, you guys, you know, I'm I'm scared to put it in public. Let's just say that. This is a safe um, space. <laughs> the internet might not be, but this is a safe space. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Um, I will say, though, that the like actual direction in this movie suddenly feels like a breath of fresh air after like Indian in the Cupboard and House Sitter and, you know, these movies that we've been going through where it kind of felt like Oz was asleep at the wheel. And this feels like we're getting back to at least the Dirty Rotten Scoundrel days, if not closer to the Little Shop of Horror days, just like with all the stuff that's going on and the special effects and and everything that I look to when I see, when I think about like what makes a good Frank Oz movie, I think there's a lot of it in this movie. Um, the content... You know, I'm going to wrestle with it as we go through. Chubby Rain. <laughs> is an incredible name for a movie. <laughs> but the the movie itself is at least interesting to look at. 
and that's more than I can say for Indian in the Cupboard and House Sitter. Sydney, uh, <laughs> why don't you share your thoughts? Yeah, like you were saying, I think Frank Oz kind of what I've been noticing is that his good movies have these super precise and like well orchestrated set pieces, and this movie definitely has a couple of them. And it is nice to see those again. I almost have a bit of melancholy watching this. Yeah, like, I think this is kind of his last full Frank Oz comedy movie. And, you know, I don't think any of them had been, oh my god, this is amazing, I love this movie so much, this is, you know, top ten movies for me. But they've all been... You you well, forgot about Little Shop of Horrors, it's, <laughs> you remember? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't... I wasn't grouping that with his kind of just like comedy movies. True. I was thinking of like In and Out, yeah. uh, House Sitter, not What About Bob. What About Bob is a <laughs> bad movie. So passionate. But yeah, like grouping all of all of them together, there. I don't think any of them are my favorite. But you know, if someone was like, "Oh, I haven't seen uh, Bowfinger yet," I'm, "Oh, that's pretty. It's pretty good. We can watch that movie." Like that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty positive on this movie. And I think definitely the biggest like Frank Oz touches, like those orchestrated set pieces, do come through in this movie. And they help differentiate it from a, another movie of this kind of style. Yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty up on this movie. What about you, Paige? I think it's fun. I had a yeah. good time with this one. Yeah, similar to like what Ethan said. It's a good time, I think. I guess that was DJ that said that. Mm. Similar <laughs> to what DJ said. It was a good time. Uh, I think that this was actually my first... I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. Pretty sure this is my first live Eddie Murphy movie. Oh, that's wow. just insane. What? That's impressive because he's got a sure lot under true. his belt. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with all of his animated voices, voice performances, but mm-hmm. I was looking through, I haven't seen Dr. Doolittle, and, oh, I have seen uh, Haunted Mansion. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I have seen Haunted Mansion, so Who, I did see that Oh, first. hell yeah, is Haunted Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's my jam. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to double down on it. <laughs> You got to have an opinion and stick with it. But yeah, I mean, this is fun. It definitely has its moments where things possibly don't quite work. Um, even like we've said, even for 1999. But yeah. um, I did have a good time with the performances. They made me laugh. And I think that there was a lot of thought into how those were portrayed. So I really liked that. And I thought the writing was honestly fun, too. I don't know. I haven't seen like Pink Panther or any other things that Steve Martin has you cannot before, compare so. this to Pink Panther. Really? It, well, he wrote it. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way? Or in any way? I mean... A way at all. But Pink Panther's trying to be like a kid's movie, I think, still. Even though Steve Martin wrote both. It's it's nowhere near the same. So, I don't know that, you know, that's the best distillation of his <laughs> comedic Fair. writing. Fair. What, this isn't a kid's movie? It's not. yeah i don't know that's mostly my thoughts on it though i think it's just fun i am still having fun as long as this filmography has felt i think there's still like joyous moments and there were still times that i was laughing out loud during this so he's still 
bringing humor successfully, which I think, I don't know if I would necessarily see this as one of his passion projects, more of Steve Martin's that Frank Oz agreed, you know, to assist with. But I think that he is still able to find humor and some type of interest in the things that he's doing, even if it's not maybe his big passion projects like Dark Crystal with um, Jim Henson and Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something to be admired about his directing style so far. I will say it's felt like after Little Shop of Horrors, we're at the halfway point of his filmography for like these last six episodes. (laughs) Because a lot of these movies feel kind of similar. They do feel very similar. I will agree with you there. But they're like... I guess they're a bit more of just, like, safe comfort food, kind of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No big swings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's well, no, like, ratatouille. <laughs> no, no ratatouille that flashes me back to when I crashed my bike and my mom baked up some... Uh, ratatouille. Ratatouille, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, that's a part of that movie. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it's, like, one of the best scenes in that movie, first yeah, of all. It is. Second of all. I mean, Frank Oz has said in interviews, like, I don't make my passion projects, essentially. Like, he did an interview in between this movie and uh, the score, where he basically said, like, every movie I've made up until this point was, like, someone else's vision and someone else's passion, including the score. And there's another project that, like, I am passionate about. Maybe someday I'll get to make it. Maybe not. And, like, just looking ahead in his filmography. Doesn't sound like he's very passionate about that project either, then. If he's like, eh, maybe I'll get this done. I don't know. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> Pretty lackadaisical <laughs> attitude for something that you're supposedly driven by. <laughs> I'll just right. wait for another script to fall on my desk and then push that back another 10 years. But, you know, it's my passion project. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, so it's interesting to me the projects that he picks then essentially to go forward with and obviously this is more of a steve martin passion project than it is anything else but i still think this is you know like we've been saying maybe one of the ones that he has a little bit more enthusiasm for in his filmography out of the last couple at the very least yeah i can see that yeah well let's get into the cast of this movie so first up we have steve martin as bobby bowfinger here it is, folks. I'm going to say it. Oh, is this I, your hot take? I'm oh. just not sure that I like Steve Martin in movies. What? Wow. Like, I think I think undeniably Steve Martin is one of the funniest people alive. And, like, his stand-up is just incredible. All the work he's done, you know, with SNL and, and all of his specials, like... And his writing, like, Steve Martin is, is truly one of the most talented comedians alive. But after watching so much of Frank Oz's filmography, like, I think really maybe the only outstanding performance is Little Shop of Horrors. And in this movie, I just feel like whoever Steve Martin is paired with, you know, we have, like, Steve Martin and Michael Caine or Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn and now Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy – Whoever his partner is, is just blowing him out of the water in every movie. Hmm. I've never watched his stand-up. Paige, you're like, you're woefully uneducated on the comedians (laughs) we're talking about today. (laughs) It's true. I should really just sit back and listen if we're being honest with ourselves. 
Frank Oz, I know who that is. <laughs> oh, I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he's the Yoda guy, right? <sighs> but I I just don't know. And then, like, after this, you know, he kind of paddles around, like, family comedy for a little bit. And then just drops off the map and hasn't done anything in years. I mean, he's got this new Hulu show that he and Martin Short are supposed to be doing with Selena Gomez. What? Right now. <laughs> that's yeah, a that's wild that's combination. An, <laughs> that's yeah. an actual thing that's happening, for the record. <laughs> How did their paths cross? I That is <laughs> madness. Uh, but that's going to be like one of his first acting roles in just years and... I don't know. I just don't know that he's ever really found himself in movies. And like I said, maybe that's just, you know, me being an insulin, you know, insubordinate, like young kid or whatever that doesn't respect the classics. But I don't know. Like, I don't think I've ever had that complaint thinking of Steve Martin in these movies. Like, I've never been like, oh, he's just worse than whoever he's acting with. But I don't know. I guess I could see it. I just don't know if I agree with it is all. Yeah. So I, I haven't been... Um, I've been listening to the episodes you guys post out, but not watching all the movies. So I probably don't have as fresh of a take on Steve Martin. But I will say I'm never, like, excited necessarily to, like, see Steve <laughs> Martin in a movie. He's always usually there. And I, I do think Ethan has a good point about how it does seem like other actors kind of have uh, either more to do in their roles or maybe he's like set up there to be like the perfect springboard for other actors. I don't know, but him on his own, like I, I was not, if I was looking at Bowfinger and it just would have been like uh, the movie poster of Steve Martin, I don't think that would have necessarily done anything for me. Um, but that, that's not, that's not like a big swing at Steve Martin, but I do hear where you're coming from. Ethan. I'll take the big swing. <laughs> I think a lot of what sells his performance with me is like the physical aspects of his acting. Like, you know, when he does like a gag in like in house sitter and flips over a chair, like that's pretty impressive. And then like how he how he gets like so animated when he's acting, I think is what pulls it for me. Not necessarily what you would think for in like a a more regular acting performance, I guess. Like yeah. the the delivery or like the how they're yeah I I I think maybe it's just for me the the different style of, of his performance being more physically oriented is is like his his biggest strength yeah I'll, and, so I know I just kind of <laughs> talked a little bit of smack about Steve Martin but I'll wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with you and I think that's why he works so well for this because I think his energy is perfect for a figure like Bowfinger and when they're doing all these scenes and he's like rushing around with the cameras and everything he really sells all that and then at the end of the scene where he like throws both of his hands up and he yells cut like yeah stuff like that (laughs) that I do think that that sort of comedy works and that role was very well crafted for him whereas Eddie Murphy honestly his facial expressions can crack me up so I do think that they're different types of comedy worked well within their respective roles and maybe he leaned into that because he was writing the script so he kind of like knew where his strength lied maybe that's it but i Mm. I do think it works and it's different yeah it's just a different type of comedy but uh not necessarily a bad thing just different 
Yeah, yeah. I understand that. Uh, well, then I guess, you know, we should talk about the, the next guy up is uh, Eddie Murphy as originally just as Kit Ramsey, a Hollywood superstar action hero, and also playing, as we've alluded to, his nerdy errand running brother, Jif Ramsey. Is it Jif or Gif Ramsey? <laughs> oh my I never God, know shut how up. to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's he's easily the best performance in this movie. He's easily both of the best performances in this movie. And <laughs> it's wild to me. I mean, when it comes to the role, I think it makes sense because I think like ostensibly he's supposed to be playing like either Tom Cruise or John Travolta, right? Like action star brainwashed by Scientology. And so originally, when Steve Martin wrote it, he wrote the part for Keanu Reeves. That is insane. <laughs> I, I I could get behind that. I, I think I can't picture that at all. I like Keanu. I do, but I I can't see this. It would definitely be like a way different character with Keanu Reeves. I think it would be like way cheesier. It would be bad. Kind of over the top. <laughs> no. No, I don't believe that at all. Well, and they were so Steve Martin and Keanu Reeves were both in Ron Howard's movie Parenthood, I believe. So that's how they like knew each other. And then this is the same year as The Matrix that this is coming out. So this mm-hmm. is like we're talking about pre even exploding fame Keanu Reeves that he wants to be in this movie. Uh, but he basically, so he took this script to, you know, as we talked about before, um, he took it to Brian Grazer and Brian Grazer was like, you should ask Eddie Murphy to do this instead. I think he would be really funny. And Steve Martin said that just like shot, you know, made something explode in his brain. And he went back and he rewrote it for Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And he actually added the GIF character at that point. So like the whole dual role and everything was all written for Eddie Murphy to be in this movie. Uh, But yeah, so I mean, I love Eddie Murphy. I have seen, you know, his live action roles page. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like Beverly Hills cop is, is genuinely an incredibly, an incredible movie. I really like Coming to America. I've not... DJ, have you seen Coming to America? No, because I know it'll make me... I know it'll make me sad. Because when Dolomite came out a couple years ago, I was like, man, I haven't seen Eddie Murphy in forever. And here he is in like a movie in like award season. I can't wait for Eddie Murphy to be back. And then he comes and does Coming to America. I have no hope it'll be good. So I get it. You know, sequels pay the bills. But this... Even the trailer didn't really have me chuckling, so I would rather be uninformed than disappointed. <laughs> so here we are. I have not watched it. <laughs> you know what? I think that's totally reasonable. <laughs> you're you're allowed to choose not to. Do you know though what theoretically his next his next movie is supposed to be? I do not. You know the movie Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? Yes. They're allegedly making a sequel to that called Triplets with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, and Eddie Murphy as the triplets. Wow. 
honestly, I'm into this so far. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. I definitely shouldn't be, but you've intrigued me. (laughs) And, you know, I kind of agree with you. Like, after Dolomite is my name is like a really great movie I thought. And it was a shame that he couldn't break into the, you know, best actor race that year, admittedly more stacked than it is this year and, and has been in the past. Um, but I was kind of bummed to hear that he basically just signed on to let's redo a bunch of nineties comedies instead of like, let's see what else Eddie Murphy can do. But yeah, He's great in this movie, and that's what matters. <laughs> His, right does now. Eddie does Eddie Murphy have the most recognizable voice? Because I definitely think it's real up. It's got to be up there. there. Sure. <laughs> it's got to be up there. So when I started this with Grace, she didn't know anything about it. And Eddie Murphy's first line of dialogue, he speaks it like when they're coming around the corner. And before he made it around the corner, she was like, Eddie Murphy? And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> His his lines of dialogue in this movie are ridiculous. Like in that first spiel, he says something about like, "Oh, that's too cerebral." I'm trying to make a film, not a movie. I'm trying to make a movie, not a film. I was like, (laughs) it was only at like the eight minute mark, but I was like, "Oh yeah, I I need me some old school Eddie Murphy. This is this is good." I love you know, and it plays on. And this whole movie is is skewering Hollywood, top to bottom essentially. Mm -hmm. But his rants about race are like both hysterical and also like unfortunately still true uh but like surprisingly poignant i was like when did this come out (laughs) when he was like making his comments about like uh black actors only getting nominated for roles in which they're slaves i was like what what (laughs) 1999 that's insane Yeah. yeah i mean we just talked about like Daniel Kaluuya will probably win Best Supporting Actor for, you know, playing a man who was assassinated by the U.S. government for stirring up, like, race relations. And then Chadwick will probably win Best Actor for being, like, an oppressed, like, musician suppressed by the white man. And, like, good God, can we not just give, like, more prestige but, like, you know fun roles to <laughs> black actors please for the love of god <laughs> it doesn't all have to be bad i mean <laughs> right right <laughs> uh but also his rant where he's like do you know how many words are in this script or how many times the letter k appears in the script god that's so funny <laughs> i do love that it's just a discussion between him and his agent and then everyone in the room just like slowly turns <laughs> and look back it's so good Oh man. Well, let's let's move on in the cast because we could talk great Eddie Murphy scenes all day. I feel like uh, we got Heather Graham, who is playing Daisy, who is a young girl from Ohio looking to break big in the movie business. Or is she? So, this is like maybe one of my bigger problems with the movie, and we can talk about it more so. as we go through. But even worse, now that I've done a little bit of research, because. Basically, everyone who analyzes this movie says that this is supposed to be like Steve Martin's big hit on his ex, uh, Anne H., who also was from Ohio, also had like a large age gap between Steve Martin and her, and then also left him and then got into a relationship with, quote unquote, the most powerful lesbian in Hollywood, Ellen DeGeneres. 
Oh. What? I said, who quoted that? I mean, it's a quote from this Ethan movie. Cooper, 2021. Oh, okay. It is. That's true. Okay. <laughs> and so, like, Steve Martin denied it up and down, basically, in interviews. Like, when Bowfinger was coming out, I read a lot of interviews where he was like, oh, no, that's not her. People are just saying that because, like, she got with a woman at the end. And it's like... All my characters ah! are purely fictional. <laughs> Just say that every week. Because <laughs> it's, it's true every bit. week. <laughs> but like, uh, Anne H, she's, she's got some stuff going on in her life. And like this movie comes out a year before she like legitimately lost her mind and wandered barefoot in the desert for like three days and stumbled into a random man's house and told him that like she was actually an angel. Uh, oh, well. And she says she was on ecstasy and also having lots of trouble. Uh, But like I said, this movie came out a year before that happened. So all of this just feels a little icky, I would say, because um, this is like Wes Anderson saying, you know, Royal Tenenbaums isn't about my parents' divorce. It's like, sure, it isn't, Wes. Like, let me get you a juice box, send you back to bed. You know, like that's how I feel about this. Where it's like, oh, sure, it's not based on your ex, Steve Martin. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that's highly upsetting. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> because, I mean, it's it's already problematic, kind of like Daisy's arc throughout this. I will admit, the movie got me. Like when she pops off the bus and she's like, "Is this where I can become a star?" My oh, yeah. southern sensibility got me, and I was like, "Oh, honey." Oh, no. (laughs) And it was funny, like, seeing her, like, take the power back. But even then, it's still gross and icky. And now with this knowledge, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I will say this. I feel like the movie at times could have been worse with that character. I feel like there are moments where, like, the moment where she sleeps with uh, Jif and then Steve Martin looks like he's going to get mad and he like pulls her aside and he's like, you just slept with Jif. And she goes, so, and he's like, Oh, I guess I didn't think about that. Like, okay, we're all good. That was you very know, like, funny. <laughs> that made me like breathe a sigh of relief because I so was not down for the scene where he like gets mad at her for it. That being said, it still doesn't feel great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about some of these other fun supporting players, um, otherwise known as the people who fade into the background. Uh, So we have Jamie Kennedy as Dave, the cameraman, and then Cole Suddeth, I think, as Slater, the actor. I could not have told you that they were two different characters for the majority of this movie, first of all. But, you know, they're there. And then we have Adam Alexi Mal as Afrem, who is the accountant and writer of Chubby Rain, the movie that they're working on. Uh, and I think he's a lot of fun. And then Christine Baranski as Carol, yes. the like dramatic stage actress. Paige is getting ready yes. to out me, so I might as well say it myself. We stand, Christine. Oh. I love her. Uh, <laughs> and like a weird childhood crush of mine. And I'll, I'll say it now because we will never ever 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 in a million years talk about ron howard but oh you're not going through each one of ron howard's films to understand him better as a director (laughs) uh but christine baranski in the grinch 
uh, was like I was going to mention weird childhood crush of mine. <laughs> oh, I get I think that. That's yeah. just I'm going to let that information live rent free in everyone's heads that <laughs> listens to this episode. Congratulations. <laughs> I think that's the only movie I've ever seen her in other than Bowfinger. So I don't think I have the best take on Christine Baranski. No Mamma Mia? I don't Mia? think I've seen... Nope. Oh. I haven't seen that. Oh, we're not a Mamma Mia household DJ. No. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, you don't have to apologize to me, but Grace will be very upset. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Every, like, I don't know a ton of movies that she's in, but I feel like she's always giving it her all. And I gotta love that. Like, her scene in the restaurant is just so over-the-top and extra. And I don't know if another person could really have given it that oomph that it needs to be as ridiculous as it is. Yeah, like, I think that's that's all my experience, is that she's very good at being a bad actor. <laughs> okay, <I laughs> Or at least pretending to be a bad actor. <laughs> right, right. It's like you, we've said before, it's very fun to watch good actors be bad at acting in a movie and uh she really sells it very well in this movie she's mm-hmm. probably my favorite of the side characters i would say yeah now i just can't get martha may out of my head ethan i'm sorry to tell you i'm sorry to do that to you <laughs> sorry right. but you know neither could a 12 year old me so you know <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's get into the plot of this movie. Before we get started, Paige is going to give us a 10-word summary. No more, no less. Exactly 10-word plot summary of Bowfinger. Here we go. (laughs) Bowfinger. Filmmaker has there's a lot of preposition missing missing here there's there's a lot of missing prepositions okay <laughs> does all that count because nope. i think we're already over 10 <laughs> i think we're, we're done <laughs> that's it all right let's restart <laughs> filmmaker has chance to make his break and fulfill dreams <laughs> well done. okay it's well mostly done. proper grammar <laughs> Uh, that one felt a bit rough, I'm going to be honest. I, it was not your best work. I applaud you. I think that <laughs> you did you. not have a lot to go from, and it's, Thank it you. still flowed. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. This DJ, is- I have to tell you as well, uh, because of your last appearance on this podcast, after the Finding Nemo episode, when we all went our separate ways, Paige comes up to me and she goes, he was very nice. He clapped at my 10-word summary. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> It was great. Yeah, I didn't say that. (laughs) They're always very wonderful. I would be stressed out of my mind if I tried to do that. And unsuccessful, actually. It's the only (laughs) bit we have, so I have to stick with it. There's no choice. Oh, man. The show was riding on you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, should we talk? Let's uh, talk some Chubby Rain. I can't get over that title. Gotcha, suckers. Gotcha, suckers. (laughs) How does the movie start? We start in our rundown uh, building, the set piece. We'll go. We'll go through this whole movie shot for shot. Shot for shot. Okay. Let's I think, do it. Okay. I think that's the okay. best way to do this. Let me close my eyes okay. so I can picture it. Okay, go ahead. So we begin with a panning shot, and we slowly pan to the front of. Oh, What's the name of the studio? Isn't it just Bowfinger? Bowfinger International. Uh-huh. Bowfinger International. Yeah. That's seen better times. We go into an interior shot with a dog laying on the couch. <laughs> As we pan further with, is it jazz or like country music playing in the background? This matters. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it right now. <laughs> okay, this score, just to comment on it, is bad. I think 
again. We're really? we're charting the efficacy of uh, Frank Oz's scores, and I do feel like you know it suffered a little bit since he lost his uh, his main score guy. So I Hi. I I hear you. I like the music. I think the I think it's ill fitting sometimes. Like I think the first song was like a what is it a, a Johnny Adams song, and I was like I like the song. I don't know if it quite fits like the tone that we're going for in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. It feels incongruous. So I feel like they had good music sometimes, but it was not the right energy for the scene sometimes. So yeah. that was a long way around to say, I agree. I just like some of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like, so Miles Goodman, you know, did the like jazzy scores for most of Frank Oz's early movies. And I feel like this is kind of trying to copy that, like, definitely the dirty rotten scoundrels energy okay but like just not doing it as well i would say fair enough yeah i think i noticed like after this opening shot i noticed the music literally zero percent of the time after that so i i don't think i can comment much on this but maybe it was bad maybe it was good who knows (laughs) it's a mystery (laughs) i i think maybe i was getting some a bit manic energies from a couple of these scenes which I think maybe is like sub- subconsciously coming from the more manic score, so that might be something. But yeah, I don't have too much analysis on the on the film score. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So we, you know, Bobby Bowfinger gets the script for Chubby Rain, an alien movie that he is going to produce. This is the one that he's finally going to make after his whole lifelong dream of wanting to make a movie, uh, he assembles our cast of, you know, actors that uh, are all giving him, like, one last chance before they leave town or take other jobs or figure out what else they're going to do with their life. Uh, And he basically tells them, like, he's going to pour his life into this one last project to get them off the ground and he has $2,184 which he says is a dollar a week that he put in a box to help fund this movie I guess we could do the math and figure out how old his character is supposed to be but I think I he says think in the movie he's supposed to be 49 oh, oh yeah because yep. he says yep. he's like yeah yeah so he says he's supposed to be I think what 48 49 something like that close mm. to 50 yeah right uh, but if you actually do the math, it's 52. Oh. You know what? That feels right. That feels right. <laughs> That's Hollywood, baby. Exactly. That, I mean, it just makes the scene better where he's like, I could maybe play for younger. But yeah, so he you know gets his actors together. He goes and picks up some Mexican immigrant camera crew oh, <laughs> in oh, one of the man. most wild scenes I think I've seen in uh, a very long time. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot. It happens. <laughs> uh, and he goes looking for a studio, um, and we get the just wild appearance of. Robert Downey Jr. as Jerry Renfro, who's supposed to be this top-ranking executive at Universal Pictures. Uh, And fun fact for Robert Downey Jr.'s life, (laughs) this is the same year that he uh, misses a drug test and gets sentenced to three years in prison. Uh, Kind of in the middle of the Robert Downey Jr. loses his mind 
uh, drug trip time in his life. This is like the middle of the five years where he was really, really struggling. Hmm. Um, and it it's very odd. I don't think I've ever gone back to watch... I hope this isn't the movie that pushed him over. No, no. <laughs> it's all think... Bowfinger's fault. <laughs> he was long done on this movie before he started. Well, you know, before uh, he missed his drug test, but... Uh, I haven't gone back, but you guys can keep going. I haven't gone back to watch a lot of like Robert Downey Jr. before Iron Man performances, but this is very like he's clearly phoning this in, you know, from from a perspective now where like our generation, I think, is used to Robert Downey Jr. like doing the Tony Stark thing in every single movie and like dialing it up to 11. Mm -hmm. It feels weird to just watch him just be like oh uh okay yeah tough call oh all right (laughs) it really is and it's also funny like like i guess it's not funny it's sad that he like went through all that drama like following the release of this movie it feels like in another world if like the mcu was trying to like start up and they needed an iron man i think his past would disqualify him i think the mcu is such a big like money-making machine now that they would want someone like squeaky and clean uh, yeah if yes. iron man was not the first avengers movie i don't think he's gonna be no, iron man there's no way i feel like in this there's so many universe. like disney protocols in place now like yeah I, ju- I just find it funny but i guess it worked out <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but his big promise to jerry renfro bowfinger's big promise is that he is going to get uh, Kit Ramsey, number one action star, Eddie Murphy, to star in his movie. And I mean, I'm painting this this thing with broad strokes, so if anyone feels really passionate about a, a scene that they want to stop down on, I mean, let me know. I don't think there's any subtle strokes in this movie, so I think you're covering it pretty well. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, but... Uh, Kit Ramsey decides that he's not going to do the movie... And so Bowfinger comes up with the idea of filming him in order to put him as the lead in the movie without him knowing. Because he only has like six scenes in the movie, so they're just going to push through. So they're going to film this movie with Kit Ramsey not knowing that he is in it. Kit Ramsey also is uh, dealing with his own mental issues and is seeing... Uh, Terrence Stamp, who's playing the leader of Mindhead, which is I Scientology. Mean, yes. Essentially. Yeah. Steve Martin says it's not, but again, yeah. Steve Martin is wrong <laughs> <laughs> about his own movie. <laughs> uh, and so he's already on the lookout for alien conspiracies. And so when, uh, when Bowfinger and crew start coming up to him and talking to him about alien stuff, he starts to kind of lose his mind a little bit. Yeah, the the middle bit of this movie is just basically that idea and going through all the different possible like permutations of like, oh, he's at a restaurant. Okay, let's run into him. Oh, he's going. He's like very confused. Oh, haha, very funny. And like we kind of we kind of keep going through that for most of this movie, I feel like. I mean, yeah, it's essentially just the same idea, just in different scenarios again and again. But I don't know. I feel like they vary it up a little bit or enough that it's still fun. But 
Yeah, each situation has its own like nice charm. Yeah, like when he's in the parking garage and he hears the footsteps <laughs> it's and it's the dog. dog with the heels. That's on. a great That's scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I really like the restaurant scene too. Like I love seeing like all the pieces come together, like the guy shining the light. And then having the oh, other yeah, actor cool. with the microphone. Because it is an ordeal to like get all these moving pieces to work together. And mm-hmm. I don't know how it was yeah. like filming this movie, but it's I hope it was a lot of fun because I it, it did feel like some of that like silliness like came across in like a fun comedic way. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean like watching like that uh that parking lot scene at one point, uh, my wife Grace was just like, Are they not concerned about his mental health? And I was like, uh, it's, you know, (laughs) it was the 90s. We didn't care about mental health back then, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) He's got Scientology. He'll be fine. Yeah, he's covered. Uh, I will say, so Eddie Murphy was super busy when this movie was filming. And so they only had him for about six weeks to actually do all of his scenes. Um, And so basically what he did was... The scenes that they filmed first were the scenes where he had to be Kit. And what he would do is he would essentially have, like, his double stand in for all the rehearsals. So everyone else would, like, practice all the scenes with his double. And then he would just, like, pull up and then do the scene, like, as the camera's filmed. One take. Wow. Wow. That's insane. Not one take, but he would throw himself in with no rehearsal. And he said, like... It was kind of his way of like method acting, basically, where he was doing all of his kit scenes like they were just happening to him, like he wasn't actually one of the actors in it. Um, And so a lot of the kit scenes are a lot more improvised. Um, That being said, like Steve Martin, Frank Oz, Eddie Murphy, they all say that the vast majority of this movie is like actually what was on the page and what was written by Steve Martin. But there are like little bits and pieces of improvisation through the movie. Um, But yeah, so he would do all those scenes as kit, essentially like trying to emulate as much as possible being you know the guy who's not actually in the movie and then turn around and then do all the scenes as jiff where he's like more with the film crew and like practicing with them and rehearsing with them just bringing an extra layer of authenticity to this movie yeah i like that little meta twist that this movie got uh i mean what what else do you guys want to talk about there's the stuff Jeff happens. with Jif is so hysterical. I mean, Paige legitimately was like, who is that actor? Because right before Jif... <laughs> In my defense, I've seen Eddie Murphy once, and it was... That's fair. Haunted Mansion, no, no, no. so I was like 10. You're, you're fine, because uh, I was watching with Grace, and she said the same thing. Because I think the guy they interview right before that is a guy who plays Mr. Mosby. And, uh, yes, that's what the sweet yes. life of Zach and Cody, and I was like, "Hey, it's Mr. Mosby," and she was like, "What? That's awesome!" And then Jif pops up, and she was like, "Who is that?" I was like, "That is Eddie Murphy," and his his expressions like are so yeah. intense as this character. Oh man, Jif yeah. Jif slayed me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I I can cut my own hair, but <laughs> I just <laughs> it's better if someone yeah, else. All, does all of that it. stuff yeah. just killed me. Uh, I mean, like, one of his best scenes is when, you know, Heather Graham or, like, Daisy 
you know takes off her top to be in the movie more and it's just like the back shot of him and his face just like wrinkles up and he's like you're You're doing a good job yeah you're doing great That and, like, the freeway scene where he's running across oh. and they're trying to get him to come. Like, God. those are two of my favorite scenes in the movie, for sure. Oh, oh man. Yeah, those are great. I also love the, the, what's the movie at the end? The fake ninja malls or fake? Oh, fake person fake ninjas? Person Thank ninjas. you. I was struggling there. But his, like, fight choreography Oh yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and that that was the part that reminded me the most of Dolomite was like that whole just so yes. terrible kung fu. <laughs> but oh man, cracked me up. Yeah, and I mean there are a lot of fun scenes in here. I mean, you guys talked about two of the big ones. I would say the other big one, you know, moving towards the end of this movie is the whole like chase of Kit to the observatory. I think is really well done and is one of those like this is where I see the most Frank Oz in this movie that I feel like I've been missing a lot is like the whole I don't know if you would call it a scissor lift I'm not good at car things as we know know. like truck things but whatever the camera (laughs) lift is that they like cover with the tree and then they're like driving down the street (laughs) And they're filming oh, yeah. off of this like giant, giant tree lift. It's just a lot of fun, and it took a lot of um, coordination and a lot of effort. Uh, both Frank Oz and Steve Martin say. Um, and then they have you know where Adam Alexi Mall is like oozing goo out of his face and out of his head, like freaking out uh, Kit Ramsey to get in the car with with Daisy. And yeah, there's just there's a lot of fun. In this whole scene, they've got like uh, Christine Baranski's head that they just like, <laughs> <Yeah>. cut. <laughs> they like fake cut off of her. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have a ton to say about like the rest of this movie. It's just genuinely a lot of fun to watch them like make Eddie Murphy go crazy. Yeah, like uh, for me, that sequence when they're at the Griffith Observatory is like a really good well-orchestrated lawn sequence of shots and everything. And I think another uh, scene is when, like, they run into Eddie Murphy. I forget, like, the specifics, but, like, he ends up, like, running away and, like, running behind the house and then, like, running into, like, where they're actually, like, filming Mm -hmm. him. Like, that whole sequence, I thought, was also really well done. Oh, yeah. So I think those two stick out as as good Frank Oz-esque scenes i guess you could describe them as and john cho is randomly there right i would i almost didn't recognize him (laughs) like very young john cho it was very uh very odd um but yeah so they try to get the very last scene that they need at the observatory when uh they are exposed by Mindhead, our scientology stand-in Um, but when they think that all hope is lost, it turns out that one of maybe the weirdest beats in this entire movie is that, uh, Kit Ramsey wants to expose himself to the Laker girls. That is a bit in this movie, unfortunately. (laughs) It's truly insane. (laughs) I love when the bus drives by. That's just such a good moment. 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> in the earlier scenes in the movie, when it comes up, I was like, "This is absolutely hysterical!" Like when he's at Mindhead for the first time, and uh, Terrence Stamp is like, "And what did those voices tell you?" And he's like, "Just if I could get." close to one of the Laker girls and it's like (laughs) you know and I thought that was so funny but then like when it actually happens and it actually becomes a plot point in this movie I was like oh I don't know that I like this anymore (laughs) yeah yeah I agree because like when Eddie Murphy like uh another time he's at Mindhead he like mimics John F. Kennedy and says as I stand before you today the Laker girls need to be taken down a peg or two and I busted out laughing (laughs) because I was like what a ridiculous (laughs) thing to say but then he like actually does it and it's like oh no that's that's not what I meant when I laughed earlier (laughs) I take my laughs back I was like I didn't mean to endorse this I it was just funny and abstract not in actual <laughs> happening yeah it's weird that that little plot point actually follows through in the movie while there's like a couple other moments that Definitely I thought don't. were going to be relevant yeah. that like just don't happen like in the restaurant when uh, Christine Baranski like splashes like the water and it gets on the mic Yeah, yes. like I thought that was going to be something and then yeah. just nothing comes of it totally fine And then, or uh, when Robert Downey Jr. It like parks his car and he's like, oh yeah, it's super expensive. Oh, I traded my kids or whatever in the divorce to keep the car or something stupid like that. He's like, if it ever got a dent, I I would be ruined or whatever. And then they steal it and then like you know, I guess they just return it like he sees that it same in the day, movie, but it's and no like, one notices yeah, and like cares. So yeah. okay. Well, and so Steve Martin said one of his first like drafts for this script, he basically like casting Eddie Murphy. I think saved this movie for him because his earlier versions of this movie had that producer character, like being a lot more of a character. And basically what it was, was that that character was dying and like was going to die in two months. And so was plotting. (laughs) I know this is going to sound insane. But was like plotting to. Have you been attending Mindhead meetings? Yes. <laughs> was plotting to blow up a Hollywood party to take out all of the other producers in Hollywood with him, because what? they shouldn't get to keep producing movies if he couldn't. Oh my god! Still the same boasting of mind, but like this is happening on the other side. So then, when the movie premieres, the premiere of the movie would have blown up. And killed all the major Hollywood actors, except for some reason, like, Kit Ramsey wouldn't be there. And then Kit Ramsey would win the Oscar that year because his whole competition was blown up. It was blown up. (laughs) And that was how this movie was originally supposed to end. And so, like, this Robert Downey Jr. casting kind of makes sense with that in mind. Because he's in the scene for three very brief scenes. Like, it's essentially just a cameo. Yeah. But knowing that, like, that character was supposed to be, like, the third lead of the movie at some point makes a little more sense. That would have been an absolutely batshit wild movie, though. With Keanu Reeves, no less. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) It's madness. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, you know what? I think I think we got the better version of this film then. We absolutely did. That. We did. It's way more wholesome. Yeah. There's still like yeah. some weird parts in this movie. I found it interesting that Bowfinger's whole like drive and motivation was not to have like his name up in lights or anything. Like when the applause pops up at the theater and everything, that is not the moment he is looking for. He's looking for the moment where the FedEx man delivers him a package. Oh, yeah. Which is an insane motivation to have. Like, it, it sets up the little, like, coda at the end of the movie very well. Like, it's a fun yeah. it's a fun scene because the pessimistic side of me was just like, oh, no, he's going to get, like, served with, like, I don't know, some sort of, like, a I was kind of thinking that whatever, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, what a bummer this movie would have been if it would have ended that way. <laughs> um, so it, like, sets up, like, a nice, like, little coda, but, like, the fact that he was like, one day, that FedEx man is going to stop here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I guess, Bobby. I guess. <laughs> I do think it's kind of genuinely sweet, though. Because there's... So, like, the job that I do now, I wanted to do my entire life. And there was just something nice. So, like... uh basically like in the volunteer positions at my job you wear like a t-shirt right and then as like a staff member you can wear like a collared shirt and in some ways wearing that collared shirt to me was like mm. a sign of you the made success it. that like i made it at my job and so like even though i'm allowed to wear either the t-shirt or the collared shirt like i still choose to wear the collared shirt every day because like I did my time in the t-shirt. Like, I want to wear the collar shirt <laughs> right. and, like, be recognized for having made it. And it's kind of, like, I don't know. I'm reading way more into it than Probably. needs to be. No, I, I think that's honestly pretty reasonable. Yeah, where it's like, oh, I made it because, like, people care enough to send me Taiwanese movie scripts that they want me to do. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, that's yeah, a it's great like, point. It's just atypical of what I would expect from a movie, right. I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it is nice. Well, and, you know, to get into kind of the, the ending and the themes and lessons sort of situation, but, like, this movie is very genuine when it comes to just being, like, an underdog story. And just being, like, about these people who all kind of want to live their dreams in separate ways. I would say, like, the only one who doesn't get to live his dream is, like, Kit Ramsey because, you know, they torture him. (laughs) Uh, But, like, literally everyone else in the movie, like, gets to live their dreams. So, like, Bowfinger gets to produce or gets to direct this movie and like Jeff Ramsey gets this job where he gets to be the errand boy, which like fulfills him. <laughs> and like Daisy gets to be a star, you know, Carol gets to be a star. Aphram's like a writer. Like they all get to achieve this dream that they all clawed at the whole movie. And it like slipped out of their grasp a couple of times, but they were able to make it through to the end. And it is this really fun underdog story, despite all the other crazy shit that's happening in it. It is, like I said, it's heartwarming at times. I think when they are all watching the movie and you get to see their individual responses to seeing themselves or seeing their work on screen, like, I don't know. I said, aw. Like, I thought it was cute. It was heartwarming. They do a a good job through all the weird shit that happens, still pulling off this emotional payoff for all these characters, so. I got surprisingly emotional when Jif was at the restaurant and they were all 
like talking and he was just like yeah i just want to do something for me that's why this is cool no one cares that i'm kit ramsey's brother and even oh, though yeah. he played for laughs like i like a part of me was just like that's so nice <laughs> i was like i don't know it just it felt so sweet and touching for some reason yeah um, well and i thought in that moment that they were all gonna jump in and be like oh tell me about kit tell me about kit like what is this what is this and they actually didn't really do that yeah. and i was touched by that yeah yeah yeah, if we're talking about touching moments too, I mean, at the premiere of Chubby Rain, when Chubby they Rain. get seated like in the front row, off to the left, like the worst possible seats that you could ever find in a movie theater, and Bowfinger just turns to Carol and is like, "These are some pretty great seats, huh?" Yeah. He's like just genuinely <laughs> happy to be at a movie that they made. Like, I don't know. There is a very sweet side to this. It is hard for me, you know. It'll be hard for me to revisit this knowing like all the Daisy stuff yeah. is very bothering to me. And like the, the Laker girls thing is just baffling <laughs> that that became a plot point. But like there is this very genuine sweet core to this movie that I find very touching. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, let's talk about the reception of this movie. So it made $98.6 million on a budget of $55 million. Which is that's Frank Oz's sweet sweet spot, which is like goes above the budget, not quite double, but enough to just keep things moving and be considered a success. Um, And it was well received by critics, has an eighty one percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and as I mentioned before, is kind of like the last financially and critically successful adult oriented film for both Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy for decades. Like, uh, both sh- of them basically switched straight to, like, you know, family movies, which make money, but then bomb. I mean, Steve Martin's, I was looking at, is just... Cheaper hysterical. by the dozen, baby! Yeah, so, like, cheaper by the... <laughs> so, like, cheaper by the dozen just gets... is brutally reviewed. And then, like, on top of that, there's... Uh, Bringing Down the House, which is like him and uh, Queen Latifah, which again is like 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Cheaper by oh, the Dozen no. is like 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Pink Panther is way down there. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely trash. Oh, wow. I haven't seen it in ages. It was just one that I was just like, oh, I remember liking that as a kid. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hearing that it was and I think too, so reviled like, is my... surprising. Yeah. <laughs> My grandpa took me to Pink Panther. Again, same grandpa who took me to the Hillary oh. Duff movie. Um, what a champ. But I really liked it. But yeah, it has a 21% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So, you know, if I watched it today, who knows that if that would be true. But uh, I don't know. It's this just very odd moment where, like, both of these guys, their careers just intersected at the right moment to have, like, this one last hurrah before... They both go down and making me, millions. What do you I mean go down? A Shrek? A gazillion dollars. But making waffles. And to me, like undeserved for Eddie Murphy. Maybe kind of deserved for Steve Martin, but you know. Wow. Because you're that's secretly me. a Steve that's Martin just me hater. Picking fights, apparently. Yeah. What the hell? Alright, guys. Well, any themes, lessons, or last thoughts that you guys have about Bowfinger? No. No, which I think is the most appropriate 
last thoughts to have of this movie. <clears throat> yeah. That you kind of enjoy watching it, and then you <laughs> you move on with your yep. life, I guess. The sun will rise again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think earlier, you know, when I was doing research for this movie, sometimes I'll watch, like, movie clips on YouTube will have, like, eight scenes from a movie, right? And if we watch the movie, like, a couple of days ago or whatever, pay, I'll throw on the eight scenes and just, like, watch them through to kind of remind myself how I was feeling throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, today... I looked at that and I watched like the three great Eddie Murphy scenes and then I just didn't watch any of the rest of them. And like, I could see myself doing like, if any time I get nostalgic for Bowfinger, I feel like I'll just look up those scenes again and just kind of let the rest of the movie pass, which is sad because like, it's not a bad movie by any means. It's just got this weird film over it that I don't think I'm ever going to, you know, make it through for another watch but and those funny scenes, scenes that hit sure. like absolutely destroyed so like they're very good quality scenes so i don't think that's necessarily right. saying anything terrible about the movie as a whole it's just i wholeheartedly agree like i for sure i'm gonna have to go back and watch some more eddie murphy scenes at some point but i don't know if i'll be necessarily revisiting bowfinger itself in entirety right um but that being said, I'm still glad I watched it. Yeah, for sure. Well, special thank you to Michael Thompson at Level Up Agent Services for our logo. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. If you have thoughts uh, or want to yell at me for disrespecting Steve Martin, you can email us at discoveringdirectorspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at ddirectorpod on Twitter or find us at Discovering Directors Podcast on Facebook. Next week, we are talking about a big diversion from the rest of Frank Oz's filmography where he tackles the gritty crime drama genre uh, with the score. So join us for that and uh, make sure that you catch DJ's podcast over at Mainly Movies. Uh, We love those guys. We love DJ. We love Aaron. And um, they're doing great work over there. So check out that podcast. Uh, DJ anywhere else you want people to find you no i just again wanted to thank the three of you for having me on again it is as always it's been a delight we are still uh i think i told uh page and sydney before we started aaron and i behind the screen are desperately trying to come up with uh some way that we can have the three of you over because we really think that would be fun but we're trying to do it in a way that doesn't involve signing you guys up to watch a ton of movies since you already have quite a plateful uh we didn't want to give you guys another like another big um, tournament to go through or something, but we will come up with. I mean, something. listen, we're we're willing to talk if if you have an idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, don't blame Movie me when time. all of your free time is spent watching movies. But uh, it already is. Yeah, I was about to say that it might already be there. <laughs> hey, we're in the good season for it right now because nothing good is coming out. So now's the time to. To Now's watch the past movies. That's true. That's Besides true. Mortal Kombat, of course, hopefully. <laughs> we will see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming. We appreciate it. And goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. See ya.